2: Okay, you have found Forum, Nature Biotechnology's podcast, where we speak with leading researchers in the field about recent papers or breakthroughs or just general topics of interest. This is episode nine, and for this one, we have a roundtable on precision oncology. And I should say that this is part of our 25th anniversary content, meaning that the journal Nature Biotechnology is now about around 25 years, and this is part of the content that we are producing to commemorate that anniversary. This roundtable is run by Marcus Elsner, our senior editor, and I'm with him now. And I think the first thing, even before we talk about the guests, Marcus, is that we should talk about why we decided to do this roundtable on this topic.
3: Well, I think the field has been around for, I don't know, two decades now. And I think one thing that we keep realizing is that in terms of actually benefiting patients, we are not anywhere near... Uh, where we thought we would be twenty years ago, we uh, we thought we'd check in uh, where where the progress is, and what we can expect in the next ten twenty years in terms of translating precision personalized treatment to uh, to the clinic.
2: Yeah, this concept that uh, you know twenty years ago we started thinking about okay, there's going to be a cancer treatment for every single person based on their genetic makeup and their tumor. And we haven't quite seen that translate over to the clinic yet.
3: There are definitely, There's definitely progress. I mean, uh, 20 years ago, we got Gleevec approved, which targets a specific uh, fusion gene um, very effectively in certain leukemias. Uh, there are other cases like uh, B-REF inhibitors in, uh, in melanoma that were approved uh, 10 years ago that have very high initial response rate, but for most cancers, it's it's hard to find specific targetable uh, mutations uh, when you just look at the genome. Um, and But there are also many ideas where we could go from here to avoid problems in the clinic um, with new technologies, new approaches.
2: Can you tell me who is in this roundtable with you?
3: Yeah, so we have really two of the pioneers in the field. So we have Elaine Mardis who is at the Nationwide Children's Hospital. Uh, she's a co-director at the Institute for Genomic Medicine there. Uh, she's also the Steve and Cindy Rasmussen Endowed Chair in Genomic Medicine. And in addition to that, holds a professorship for pediatrics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Um, and she has really been instrumental in uh, the characterization of uh, many tumors initially, like Leukemia, breast cancer, glioblastoma, lung cancers. And now she focuses more on childhood cancers. And the second guest is Lillian Su, and she's a senior medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Um, and she also heads the program for phase one clinical trials. And probably most relevant for this discussion, she's also. Uh, the co-director of the uh, Ontario wide Cancer Target Nucleic Acid Evaluation Program, Octane. And that is a dedicated program uh, in Canada uh, where uh, genomic data or molecular data is used to, uh, to select approved therapies or facilitate the use of targeted therapies or direct patients to, uh, to immune therapies or, cl- or other clinical trials.
2: Okay. Sounds good. Uh, off you go. Here's Marcus Elsner and our Precision Oncology Roundtable.
3: Uh, Lillian, Elaine, thank you so much for, uh, for making the time to talk to us today. And um, I guess we can just start to talk about the topic of the podcast, and that is personalized cancer medicine. And um, I guess my first question is that um, I think cancer treatment has been personalized to a certain extent for a very long time. Um, so, what is the par- paradigm shift that is occurring now compared to what we have uh, done before? Maybe Lillian can start.
4: Yeah, I think uh, you're right, Marcus. I mean, as a physician, I would say we have always been personalized because every patient in front of us is a different individual. So therefore, I think most of us feel that the term personalized is probably not the best term. And I would certainly prefer precision cancer medicine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to use the cliche, treating the right patient at the right time with the right drug. I think we are still obviously trying to aspire to that because that's what we are always doing in drug development and translational science but i think the field is moving so fast with novel technologies that we're now going beyond next generation sequencing and genomics there is a lot more omics that can help us understand more and obviously the whole era of immuno oncology bring us to a whole new era of precision medicine as well so to me this is much more than you know ngs 1.0 we're now in the multi omic world where we can learn so much more about the host immunity the tumor microenvironment, the tumor cells and intrinsic, extrinsic mechanisms and putting it all together beyond just one drug, one gene, one target.
0: Right, I, I completely agree, Lillian. Um, this is precision medicine and we definitely have moved past you know NGS 1.0, um, especially in the pediatric setting, which is where uh, most of my work is happening which is a little slower to catch up, quite frankly, to precision medicine um, compared to adults. But, you know, this is something that we're really focused on. And with regard to the multi-omic component, I would agree that in the pediatric cancer world, you know, we rarely have uh, even a single driver that can often be discerned by simply looking at DNA alone. So fusion drivers are very prevalent. They're much much more readily identified through um, RNA-Seq-based analysis. Um, Indeed, we can also look at the downstream impact of epigenetic drivers, which are also quite common in pediatric cancers, by looking at outlier RNA expression and ultimately protein expression. So these are really the, the aspects that I think flesh things out significantly. think also in the adult cancer world, as you said, we're moving beyond this single mutation equals drug equals response paradigm, because we know that that's really not the reality, you know, in terms of if you apply that, you don't get a uniform response across patients, because patients are very unique and individualized in terms of the other mutations, the other genes that are in the mix. And you know, I think the field is now moving to this much more advanced approach of looking at the genotype in full rather than a single gene indicator uh, of likely response.
3: I guess that's uh, many cancers have quite, as you say, complicated mutational uh, makeups. I guess a physician cannot just look at the data by hand and um, and uh, make up his or her mind uh, what drugs, the combinations of drugs to give. So how do you see uh, computational approaches developing that kind of help physicians to make this kind of decisions?
4: Yeah, this is a really important topic, and I would say very much um, timely. Um, you know, in the past, you know, we finish one clinical trial, we have our correlative data set, and then we sit down with our biostatistician or bioinformatician and say, hey, we have these responses and these non-responses can you make some sense out of this data with the correlative studies? I think this is not the right approach anymore. Obviously, it's really a learning system that is continuous. You, you feed the information, you learn from each case at real time. And you know now with liquid biopsies, we can actually understand how cancers change dynamically before it's really impractical to biopsy somebody repeatedly over time because it's too invasive. Now we have non-invasive technologies such as liquid biopsies, such as radiomics. And I think we really need to learn how to, you know, get information from that kind of information real time and constantly learn. And this is where data sharing is really, really important. And, and you know, AACR has done a great job in the Genie project, ASCO in the CancerLink I think this is no longer just aspirational, I think this is now reality that we can do that in a big scale internationally.
3: Can you maybe explain to our listeners what those projects are that you just uh, referred to?
4: Elaine's the AACR ex-president, so I'm going to let her talk about AACR Dini.
3: Uh-huh.
0: So, so it's really, uh, as Lillian said, it's all it's a data-sharing world, and I think this potentiates so much. So Genie was started about five years ago as an initiative of Charles Sawyers, who was the president of AACR at the time, and really has, you know— grown significantly. Now, getting close to, I think, 100,000 uh, records from individuals treated at a variety of centers throughout the world, um, studied by NGS-based methods, as we were talking about earlier, um, assigned to either a clinical trial or an FDA um, or, or European um, Drug Commission approved target, and then um, followed with respect to outcomes. And so, this potentiates this big data world that Lillian is referring to where we now have these very accomplished machine learning, um, uh, you know, experts who can, because of the accessibility of these data, and that's key, now start to put together the paradigmatic, you know, combination of mutations that equals best outcomes. And I think, you know, while that sounds really complicated, it actually improves it for, if you will, the average oncologist who may not have even grown up in this era that we've been in for the last 10 or 15 years, because these tools now really allow fairly straightforward input with a fairly straightforward output. So it's really now the accessibility of the machine learning tools to help you know, a person with a, a molecular profile in hand for a given patient input that information and Come back with a series of likely um, single therapies, combination therapies, immunotherapy, if you will, um, or what have you, or clinical trials that the that the patient you know could go on to. Although that's less likely because you know we haven't really um, looked at the outcome of those trials yet. So uh, to me, that's really the the gain for the field as a whole because we can equal access. Of oncologists and patients to the knowledge that's out there that's been created by these large data compendiums.
3: I think with those machine learning tools, one of the issues one can potentially see is that different groups, different researchers will come up with different ways of modeling this. So, how do we design trials to test those automated or semi automated tools to make treatment des- decisions and compare one to another?
4: Yeah, I mean, You know, heterogeneity doesn't exist only in machine learning platforms. Heterogeneity exists in every aspect of our research. So I'm not worried too much about that because if everything is the same, you know, then life would not be as interesting. And our uh, battle against cancer would have been solved already. Um, I think we obviously need to think about how to homogenize and learn from these kinds of data sets. But at the same time, I think we have to understand that heterogeneity will exist and we have to factor that into our understanding. Obviously clinical trials need to evolve as we evolve into this field in personalized precision medicine as you asked. And and you know can it be just n of 1 that every patient is his own control or her own control and we compare against the world without precision medicine and see whether they derive benefit because of a precision approach? I mean that's obviously one way but i think we could be a bit more pragmatic in design i mean obviously there are certain things still common to different patients in different subsets that we can still group them together and look at you know within that group the heterogeneity does exist but we can still you know have some overarching principles that tie them together to design the trial for example, basket trial is such an I- an idea where it's sort of the first generation of tying together heterogeneity patients in the same basket. And I think if we move into the next generation of multi-omic trials, similarly, we can think about platform trials that can tie in some common elements to understand different subsets that have some common elements together. I think it's
0: also the case that the way, and I'm certainly not a machine learning expert, so don't take this the wrong way, but... The, the way that these machine learning approaches go, um, essentially, they train on a data set, which could be one clinical trial, a basket or umbrella trial, and then they test the, uh, you know, sort of machine learning approach on a second set of data to compare, sort of, what what was, you know, projected from the training set onto what is. Project, uh, projected for the test set. So with, with two complete trials worth of data, you could at least at a first pass benchmark the performance of one specific approach that would then allow, um, you know, in terms of positive predictive value, for example, that would then allow um, providers to evaluate that particular approach may be relative to all others. Your point, though, is well taken. We do need to set up a standardized framework in which an oncologist can understand a given test and use that, you know, benchmark to, you know, to understand how well that performs on a second data, on a second data set that's not the training data
3: set. And just to explain, uh, so BASCO, Basket trials are so when you have different cancers or different tissues of origin and you yeah. uh, combine them based on some molecular profile. But umbrella trials, so you have um, we have one cancer from one origin and then uh, stratify the patients uh, again according to molecular uh, profiles. That's correct, right? Right.
0: That's, That's right. Yeah. And multiple drugs to offer to those patients. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So I guess one practical problem is that uh, uh, that many hospitals will face is that, um, as you said in the beginning, we have moved beyond uh, just sequencing the genome, providing RNA-seq proteomics data. I think f- probably that will be quite far off for most cancer patients just based on the cost and availability of technology. So in practice, which parameters, which uh, which omics technologies are likely to be the most useful if you have to prioritize to, to RNA seq, DNA seq, proteomics on, on a patient sample.
0: I, I, I will speak first and say that I find these arguments highly ironic because the cost of the cancer drugs that are going to be prescribed exceed the cost of these tests in extremis. Um, so I'll I'll just lay that out there. But I I take your point, Marcus. But I do I do feel like it's a it's a bit of a false concept.
3: Yeah, it's actually that's my, that's actually my next question would have been my next question. What are the, actually the drivers of uh, precision medicine costs, and um, are they significant in in terms of everything else that uh, that creates costs in cancer care? So I guess you already answered that.
0: Well, I I kind of did, but but let's go with it a little bit further. I think it's important, and I would love to hear Lillian's thoughts on this. In a world where we better diagnose a cancer's vulnerabilities upfront. and and the the irony here, of course, is that patients who get onto the clinical trials typically are quite advanced. They've been through multiple lines of therapy. they're you know they're reasonably well, but they're also quite ill. And so I think you know lung cancer, because it's furthest along in the precision medicine paradigm, because it's one of the most prevalent cancers, may have some learnings for us over over the the nearness of time. Um, but but I I do feel like, and I'll just be brief here, that the full picture of the health economics is rarely considered in the context of precision medicine versus, you know, old school all all size fits one, you know, chemo and or radiation therapy. Um, just in terms of, you know, the likelihood of success and uh, another aspect that doesn't often get talked about, which is especially important in pediatric and young adult cancers, which is the downstream side effects of aggressive chemotherapy and radiation, um, which also have a cost. So Lillian, please
4: comment. Yeah, I totally agree with Elaine. It's, you know, we've been, even from NGS 1.0 trying to sort of demonstrate the utility, clinical utility of precision cancer medicine and it's such a hard thing to do because sort of the the collateral benefit of precision medicine is very hard to quantitate. You know somebody being able to return to work and assume a normal work life How do you measure that, right? Instead of being sick from chemotherapy, toxicities, you know, can not go to work, cannot take care of their family versus somebody who is, you know, able to return to work, feel great. Those are very difficult to measure dollars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I totally agree that cost of drugs is a big issue. And there has been many written about that issue already. And I also think that technologies in time do go down in pricing and cost. Like, you know, NGS was so expensive when, you know, it first came out. Now, a lot of people get it done on a fairly regular basis. I think, you know, and I also think that the multi-omic concept when you ask which one is most relevant, I think is context cancer dependent. You know, you cannot say like sarcoma, for example, is probably a very epigenetic disease as we know it. And doing NGS for genomics for mutations, you probably won't get anywhere for mm-hmm. a driver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we can say one size fits all. We need to think about the context. And this is where the learning systems and big data would really help us. Because in your own center, you have like, you know, 50 such cases, but in the whole world, there are probably thousands of those cases. Hmm. You can only learn from thousands of cases and not from 50 cases. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna push more in terms of the whole data sharing culture, because I think that's really important. and, And this is now the time that we do and not just talk.
1: and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay authenticity guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: So does that include also I mean, there must be plenty of off label use of drugs that is just happening is probably not recorded in a systematic way. Is that so we already talked about uh, one such initiative. So are there worldwide initiatives to systematically uh, collect this kind of data that even end of one treatment uh, trials that one physician does in some hospital somewhere uh, that could still probably be valuable for um, uh, to contribute another data point?
4: Yeah, there are a lot of off-label initiatives to collect data, such as you know ASCO's taper mm-hmm. study. Uh, The Canadian capture study, the Netherlands, for example, has their drug study where drugs are obtained from pharmaceutical companies and patients who have specific genetic alterations are put on these drugs on an off-label basis, but under the auspice of clinical trials, not just, you know, haphazard use and Mm -hmm. you never know what happens to them. I think these efforts are important and these groups have already from the get go agree to share that data to learn from each other. And and certainly, I think that's the way to go. Uh, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, I live in a country where off-label drug use is not as possible. Uh, So we have no other chance to get drugs for patients for off-label use unless we enrolled on clinical trials. Um, because self-pay is just prohibitive, so I think these are important initiatives to continue in as we move further in the in the, uh, in the next generation 2.0 kind of era.
3: Um, so maybe you can go back to the underlying science a bit. So uh, Lillian, you mentioned you mentioned uh, liquid biopsies um, and the potential utility of this. So, so where do you see uh, the state of liquid biopsy use and utility in the clinic, and what are the hurdles for uh, implementing them in standard cancer care?
4: <laughs> I'm sure both Elaine and I will have a lot to talk about liquid biopsy, and uh, I, I think this is a game changer. I truly do. I think for us as oncologists, you know, we're used to radiological CAT scans. To me, this is a molecular scan, and to have a molecular lens to see what's going on, on a repeated timeline on patients who have a cancer that keeps changing, that's a big deal. And and we can afford to do this because it's non-invasive. And uh, I think we can learn so much more from different omics and liquid biopsies. But I'll pass to Elaine.
0: Right. I mean, I would love to have uh, lots of experience with liquid biopsy in the pediatric setting. We're just we're just starting to push in this direction, um, given the lag in you know precision medicine overall in the pediatric setting. But I am similarly excited about not just tracking the known mutations as they ebb and flow in response to therapy, which I think is incredibly important, and as we know, will be much more predictive of for example, um, emerging acquired resistance then waiting for the next imaging cycle to come along. Um, but I also, you know, we're also exploring, for example, from liquid biopsy, um, the opportunity to look for activation of different subsets of the immune system, um, mm-hmm. which can become incredibly important um, in the context of then invoking an immunotherapy, um, a course for that patient. and. Um, in, in my own research, this is really focused on brain cancers, which are, as an adults, a very poor outcome cancer for for kids. Um, so I, I do think there's a huge amount of potential. I guess the other thing to mention just around liquid biopsy, of course, is early detection and even a mode that is now be, being referred to as precision prevention, which probably has the most cachet in patients or people who are going to become patients based on an underlying susceptibility to develop cancer. And I, I'm actually really excited to think about what that's going to mean for those individuals um, as we're better able to detect them genetically with MGS. You know, how do we now couple that with a liquid biopsy and, um, you know, accelerated or more frequent imaging. Uh, maybe even immune um, interventions that could be preventive as opposed to something that we do after they develop their cancer. So I think that's a huge area that's really uh, largely untapped, but definitely moving forward.
3: So technology-wise, at the moment, uh, I assume that detecting uh, mutations in cell-free DNA is the most advanced. Uh, so what can we expect to uh, to see in terms of detecting expression profiles or maybe even protein expression? So we just published a paper where the uh, group of Near Friedman did chip-seek on um, cell-free DNA. Uh, people have looked at nucleosome positioning for detecting active and inactive genes. So do, do you think we can go much further than that to learn more about the um, proteome and the transcriptome of the tumors?
4: Yeah, for sure, Marcus. I mean, you know, we have a lot of interest in our center with methylated DNA with Daniel De Carvalho's group, and because the attraction is obviously it's not mutational based, so there could be different patterns related to different methylation patterns in cancers across different tumor types, such that you don't need to have mutations based on somatic changes in in the in the in the genes. So. That to me is it's very important because not all patients have detectable mutations. Some, some cancers are very genomically silent and quiet. So not be able to use liquid biopsy in those cases would be a pity. Um, one area to, just to also you know, echo Elaine's point is we are very interested in, in the MRD, the molecular residual disease setting, and, and similarly to molecular prevention you know, to be very frank, advanced cancer patients, we cannot do very much, no matter what we try, even if we detect a bit earlier their relapse or their resistance, we are going to not change much of their longevity. But preventing cancers who have high risk to come back and preventing cancers who have predisposition to develop cancer, that's a much, much more, you know, important
1: goal.
0: And I would just add briefly that in the context of the transcriptome and proteome, um, especially for my research, we've been really focusing on RNA coming out of exosomal um, or or extracellular vesicles. So this is a protective environment to some extent, as opposed to just straight um, plasma or serum for the RNA. Um, you know that we can then evaluate using a variety of different methods to um, to understand the changes in that patient uh, over time. So. It's definitely not limited just to circulating DNA. I
3: guess uh, circulating or any kind of circulating biomarker uh, gives you uh, one window into the heterogeneity of the tumor. Are there other ways of dealing with heterogeneity um, uh, uh, than looking at those uh, blood and plasma-based markers?
0: I mean, single cell is obviously, if you can get at tissue... Um, you know, a very current mode that I think is going to, you know, it's exploded, let's face it. And and I think that's been very informative, especially with respect to tumor microenvironment, you know, really cataloging all of the cells, if possible, that are in the tumor. I'm actually excited about the falling cost of sequencing, um, because I do feel like in some ways, single cell has been, you know, is quite expensive or has been in the past. And so, some of those data sets have been a little bit um, sparse and maybe um, with decreased cost of sequencing, we can see a greater sampling of tumors to really understand the breadth of uh, a given tumor type in, in terms of its molecular composition and its composition over time. It, for a, for example, in a therapy inter, intermediate where you have sort of a pre-treatment versus post-treatment. Mm-hmm. And we're doing this now in single cell in mouse models um, but ultimately, yeah, developing it into um understanding the patient's cancer, I think, in that therapeutic intervention um interval is going to be really important.
4: And one other area that also is non-invasive and can look at heterogeneity is obviously imaging. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. we, we are doing a lot of work in radiomics, for example, and uh um looking at not just the size and you know, the shape, et cetera, but also different aspects of the radiological imaging that you're doing on a day-to-day basis, CTs and MRIs, that you know many groups have actually been able to create radiomic signatures that can predict outcome. Um, I think that again captures more than just one area where you're biopsying, you know, one small part of the tumor that has potentially metastasized to multiple areas. So, I think that's a very exciting area as well
0: yeah, and maybe, as we study more at the single cell level, we'll come up with new contrast reagents, for example, that could be used in with an imaging modality and could tell us a lot more about you know the heterogeneity in that patient's tumor.
3: Since you mentioned mouse models, Elaine, where do you see the role that basic research can play in developing approaches to sequence different um different aspects of the tumors or to develop machine learning algorithms? to better model drug or treatment selection.
0: Well, the the current feeling I think there Marcus is around patient-derived organoids as a screening vehicle, right? Because you know, the mouse models have taught us a, a huge amount, there's no doubt, but the homogeneity of the mouse strain background is very different than our own um in most cases anyway and 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 in indeed you know there in mouse models you typically have sort of a known genotype right because it's been introduced by a variety of of genetic tricks and so i i'm you know not doing this in my own work but really excited about what's going to develop out over time with these organoid based systems um in three dimensional culture with drug screening because we can also genotype the organoids and understand, much like we do for a patient, what is that, um, you know, makeup. Now, I think one question about organoids, which remains and could be a gotcha in this regard, is sort of if you have a heterogeneous tumor that you then use to make organoid culture, do those organoids adequately represent the heterogeneity? And I think that's, you know, not a well-established or well-known entity just now. So, so, there will have to be some caution taken there. Um, but I, I think it's an exciting area.
3: Do you also feel that those organoid models or PDX models, or even maybe just uh, patient cells, tumor cells in a dish, could be a valuable addition to all the omics based approaches that we discussed so far? Just to basically for each patient test drugs um, before we give them to a the patient.
0: I think the challenge there, Lillian should address this too, but I think the challenge there is just that depending upon the type of cancer, we often don't have the luxury of time to do those experiments in terms of the, you know, relative time frame of when a patient needs to be diagnosed and treated versus how long it would take to do the screening. There are some systems that are utilized for that. Um, that have been published and are being actively worked on now. So, you know, that may change over time, but, um, I think that's probably the biggest challenge.
4: Yeah, I agree. A lot of these sort of co-clinical trials, the issue is the time it's hard to sort of be able to preempt the clinic and patients need to make decisions fairly quickly, but maybe we can learn from tumors like the one that the patient has and apply that knowledge Mm -hmm. to that particular patient. But, uh, I'm sure. Obviously, over time, these things become easier and faster, and we can be able to apply it more real time. But I, I agree that organoids are very exciting, and uh, hopefully, we can we can you know be able to turn them around faster and be able to be more reflective of what happens in the patients as well. Given that the environment is a lot more complex, obviously, in in a patient.
0: The other possibility there, of course, is that not for that patient, but for future patients, you could also populate data around organoid genotypes and responses and add that into your machine learning-based approach like we were talking about earlier. So that may be, in the fullness of time, a valuable adjunct um, to the real-time data from patients.
3: I think my my final question that I have is, I'm I'm sure when you do all the omics-based analysis, you find... Potential drug targets uh, that you would really like to target, but there's just no approved drug um, uh, for that particular target. Um, but there might have been early clinical trials with uh, with the drug that proved safe, but just not efficient as a monotherapy. What's your thinking on how can, can we utilize that enormous research uh, resource that has has been built up over decades of drugs that are safe, but has have just never been successfully enough. Uh, in earlier clinical trials, but might be for subsets of patients. <laughs>
4: uh, I think if we're gonna do that, Marcus, we have to do this under a clinical trial, obviously, because mm-hmm. I certainly don't want to sort of take a drug from you know the pharmacy and say, "Hey, take this," because I think it's gonna help you for your cancer based on what I think from your multi-omic analysis. So, again, I think. You know, there might be a lot of drugs that we are, we have that we're not aware of that could have these kinds of potential, uh, maybe not as potent as we would like, but maybe we can learn from them as as we become more sophisticated in this experience. So, but I think, as I said, I would only want to do something like that in the, uh, under the auspice of a trial. Yeah, I actually thought where you were
0: going to go with that was to undruggable targets, which, you know, continue to be a vexing, uh, you know, challenge. KRAS comes to mind, for example. Um, but we, of course, have new insights thanks to medicinal chemistry and other, you know, sort of biology-based approaches to understand the co-activating, you know, proteins with some of these um, undruggable targets. And they're there in pediatric cancers as well. Um, you know, I could name off a list of them. So, so I think, I'm really excited about re-energizing the medicinal chemistry and structural biology-based approaches to undruggable targets and really starting to think outside of the box. And it looks like some of these efforts are now starting to um to pay off with therapies that are in clinical trials.
3: Yeah, I think that's uh, all the questions I had. Um, so but uh, is there anything that I forgot to ask, something that you feel uh, should really be mentioned on the podcast?
0: Want to talk about real-world evidence, Lillian?
4: <laughs> oh, we need Strike for this.
3: <laughs> That's right.
4: <laughs> I think we cover a lot of grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: But I think real-world yeah, evidence is actually a good question. So um, what is the real-world evidence that what we're currently doing is benefiting patients? Because I know that there was controversy about that in the past.
0: There still is to this day. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, we're we're sort of laughing because Lillian and I, back when people were actually meeting in person, which would have been last January, actually um, co-chaired an AACR meeting on real-world evidence, which was a real eye-opener for me um, in terms of the potential for RWE and really understanding, um, you know, the, the, the paradigm that I was talking about earlier, which is, you know, The reality of clinical trial patients and who gets enrolled versus the actual results from targeted therapies in the real world once they are through the clinical trial process and once they're approved. Mm -hmm. So to me, that I think is a bit of an untapped resource. I'd love to hear Lillian's current thoughts on it, but that's a lot of what we explored during that meeting is sort of how do we get to that? and really, you know, um address these um voices that are saying, you know, these drugs are expensive and they provide little to no clinical benefit because those voices are definitely there. Lillian, I'll I'll hand off to you
4: and yeah, there there is a huge initiative in in many groups, especially pharmaceutical companies that are sort of investing a lot of funds in looking at this whole the RWE Question: Because they obviously want to know what happens when their drugs are approved, who's using it, and and what what are they seeing in terms of benefit that are not being you know collected otherwise. And it's it's a tough area. You think that you know just collecting data from whatever is happening in your hospital should be easy. It is probably much harder than clinical trials, to be honest, because it's not following a protocol. You're collecting you know day to day EMR that is often you know not in, in a regulated format that you can just pull it out you have to homogenize it that you can understand it uh, it's a science that i think it's going beyond today's discussion
3: yeah, we can have another podcast on that you should sometime down the road yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so thank you very much i think this was super enlightening for me um, and Great. hopefully for our listeners too
2: All right, Episode 9 of Forum is complete. Thank you to our two guests, Elaine Martis and Lillian Sue. Obviously, we could not have done this without you and your insight. It's much appreciated. A note or reminder that our March issue marks 25 years of Nature Biotechnology. We have created content specifically to commemorate that anniversary. You can find it in those pages. It is also on the homepage of Nature Biotech, and we'll have more as the, the year moves along. So happy birthday to this journal. Uh, If you'd like to comment on Nature Biotechnology, this podcast, or anything that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. A nod of appreciation to the Midwest Quiet for letting us use your music in this podcast. And that is all. I hope you enjoyed Episode 9 of Forum.